Let's go. Welcome to The Dad Presents, where we pledge allegiance only to family and principle. In just a few minutes, guys, we're going to be spreading love and liberty with the man who is quite literally the most knowledgeable man in the world when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, Mr. Scott Horton. If you're unfamiliar with Scott, he's the director of the Libertarian Institute, and a few weeks ago, he wiped the floor with neocon Billy Crystal in a debate. Just just humiliated this neocon. Uh, Scott, you know, in talking to him and in listening to him on his own show, he's got to be borderline autistic or something because this man, the way he remembers information and is able to retrieve it and spit it back out, it's, it's like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, we've had Neil deGrasse Tyson on this show and not even he could recall data from the depths of his brilliant mind as fast and effectively as Scott can. So you guys are going to absolutely love him. Anyway, that's going to be in a few minutes. Um, in our last episode, we had trans girl Rachel. And guys, I'm, I'm blown away by you guys. We got 11,000 downloads and streams uh, on that episode which is a little bit higher than normal for us, which I was not expecting because she's not very well known. And look, man, you know, I know the nature of this audience. I know that because of my COVID politics that this audience is more conservative folk than liberal. And the fact that a show with a completely unknown trans girl was got was so well received and got so many downloads tells me a lot about my audience and a lot about conservatives in general. For... You know, for a bunch of dum-dums and for a bunch of people who the media tries to label as being closed-minded, you guys are some pretty open-minded people. You're willing to listen and give something different a chance. And that really gives me hope about society. So thank you for listening. Now, before we jump into the show, we have a little bit of house cleaning to do. It's, it's, uh, it's prize time. I promised last week that one of you lugheads would win a hundred bucks if you could form a full sentence and put in a good review on iTunes. We got 11 new reviews. That's a lot in a week. So thank you. And the winner of the best review, I read them all. The winner reads as follows. I discovered the podcast recently and I've been loving it. It's in your face and funny and it brings intelligent takes on today's issues. But the dad's singing voice needs a lot of work. (laughs) <laughs> that was from buff daddy 247 congrats buff daddy buff daddy the winner is 100 percent a gay fuck boy who shaves his chest and works out at crunch gym in west hollywood and that's cool you know that's cool because we love the gays here at the dad presents so if you're buff daddy hit me up at mad at the dad presents.com and i'll venmo you that 100 dollars so you can go out and spend it on protein powder or viagra or anal douches or or all three, all right? You have a good time, gay buff daddy. Uh, I thought that was a funny review, and it's it's fun to make fun of old Matty boy here. I don't know why, but my whole life, honestly, I've enjoyed when people poke fun at me. I don't know why. Maybe I have low self-esteem. Probably not. Anyway, gay buff daddy, you're wrong because, you know, I, I gave you guys a taste last week, and, and it's obvious that I have some friggin' pipes. I mean, you hear that? Who else, who else but Michael Jackson himself can go up there and hit that high F? Last week, I gave you a little bit of the baritone. This week, you get that high F. All right, so you're wrong. 
Gay Buff Daddy. All right, on to business. This podcast is brought to you by the CIA and the Deep State. Don't believe what you're hearing on Joe Rogan or Tim Pool or even on The Dad Presents. They tell big lies for ratings and cannot be trusted. We here at the CIA give the real news directly to CIN to spread truth and goodwill and propaganda to all of you. The vaccine has been 95% efficacy at protecting you from getting COVID. Parents who go to school board meetings and Julian Assange are terrorists and they're a threat to your way of life. And Donald Trump peed on a Russian hooker and then made a fake laptop with pictures of Hunter Biden smoking crack with a Chinese prostitute spy in order to fool all of you podcast listeners. So come to the CIA for your news. Now, uh, you guys might wonder why I'd sell myself out like that and do an advertisement for the CIA and bad mouth my own podcast like that. But uh, it's willing it's because I'm like everybody else. You know, I got a price. I'm willing to shove government propaganda down your throat because I'm a whore. I'll say anything for money, and the CIA pays well. And in addition to that, they also told me that if I didn't do it, they were going to force my two boys into gender reassignment surgery and send them to Epstein's Island, where that's, you know, obviously where they do all of their important training and whatnot. (laughs) All right, kidding. This podcast is sponsored by SheathUnderwear.com. Sheath was created by an Afghanistan war vet who was tired of his sweaty balls sticking to his sweaty leg. So when he got out, he invented sheath underwear, and it's the most comfortable underwear I've ever worn. Keeps you cool and dry, super comfortable, and that's a true story. Code word dad for 20% off. So kids, if you're watching on the YouTube or the Rumble, thank you, man. It's, it's appreciated. Puts an extra couple dollars in my pocket. I appreciate that, and I'll take the next step and hit subscribe. Um, Now, when you're watching there, you might notice today, I don't look my normal beautiful self. Maybe you're looking and I look a little bit disheveled and uncomfortable. Uh, Maybe you're looking at me and you think I look like Anthony Fauci might be sitting under the desk and poking me in the butthole with a long syringe. And maybe he is. Or maybe Monday morning, I woke up like any other day and stretched and yawned and apparently yawned very aggressively because it blew out a disc in my back, 100% blown out as per the MRI, spent two days on the floor, working from the floor. Sucks, guys. Getting old, I, I, I know you guys, another thing I know about my audience is you're getting old. The average demographic of this audience is above 35. You're getting old out there, guys. Uh, I'm getting world, getting old. It, it sucks because Father Time, as anyone who watches sports knows, Father Time is undefeated. I I exercise every day, every day since I've been about 14, 15 years old. And it used to be out of vanity. I used to do it when I was 15 because I was a skinny little punk and uh, I got picked on and I wasn't attracting the ladies because I was, I was skinny and immature and all that. So I worked out because I wanted to look better. But that ended probably by age 30. Now I work out because I've had a dozen plus orthopedic surgeries in my 20s from sports injuries and I'm in constant pain. So now in my 40s, I'm doing my absolute best to keep my body from literally falling to pieces. I mean, I I expect one day I'm going to get up, I'm going to yawn, I'm going to aggressively yawn and just like the shit's just all going to come apart in bed, just like 
just literally break up into a, like chicken parts in the bed. I'm falling apart. So I'm doing my best to keep the shit tight, to, to stay out of pain, to live. And I don't get it, man. I, I do yoga. I lift weights. I jog. I do pull-ups and handstands every day. I have sex with my hot wife and sometimes her hot sisters and hot friends. I've added 22 pounds of muscle and dick meat to this frame since the pandemic started. I should be a rock. I should be fucking indestructible. But I'm not. I got taken out by an aggressive yawn. Aging blows, guys. You know, it blows. And and that's why I'm grateful for science because there's a lot of new science coming out to fight aging. Um, spoiler alert, I ordered metformin. Metformin, I believe, is a drug for uh, blood sugar problems. But it's been linked to anti-aging more effective than pretty much anything out there. So this, again, is not a medical advice podcast but if you're getting old and you want to feel a little younger, look into the metformin. So anyway, guys, COVID, Omicron, ha. You guys know it's been about a year since we've had the vaccine. A year. We've had this vaccine for a full year now. So let's review. Right. Let's look at what Fauci and company told us about the vaccine a year ago. What did they tell us? Do you guys remember? Because they change your story constantly. I remember they said the vaccine is safe and effective. Right. Well, on the safe front, if you go to the CDC VAERS reporting system, there's registered hundreds of thousands of injuries and 20,000 vaccine deaths. Okay, that's just the ones that have been reported to the CDC VAERS site. Okay, they told us a year ago that the vaccine had 95% efficacy at preventing COVID infections. And that's what they said, preventing COVID, 95%. That's what they told us. Well, I mean, here we are a year later, breakthrough cases are through the roof. It clearly doesn't stop you from catching it. Not even close to 95%. And they've changed the narrative. They no longer say it prevents infection. Now they say, well, you won't get as sick. All right. They said the vaccine will allow us to turn return to normal life. I don't know, man. Doesn't feel like normal life out here in California yet. My kids are still wearing masks at school. If you want to go see a show or go to a restaurant, you got to show your vaccination papers. Doesn't feel like normal life here. They said... At that time, when 65% of the population has been vaccinated, we're going to reach herd immunity. Herd immunity, 65% vaccination rate. Well, we're at about 82% vaccination rate in America, and we're also about to set new records for covert infections. Covert. Covert? That'll be, that'll be the next variation. Covert. Go Delta, Omicron, Covert. At, meanwhile, in Africa, they're at like 7% vaccination rate and they have like one one hundredth of the COVID infections that we have. So what the fuck is going on? Number five, they told you when the vaccine came out, well, the worst is now behind us. The worst is behind us. Well, the reality is that since the vaccine came out, there've been far more COVID deaths since that day. Now, you can argue that the, the vaccine didn't get really ramped up till about mid-January or February. Okay, fine. Compare the deaths 
up until mid-January, February, and from then till now, and there's still more COVID deaths since then. Number six, they told us that they will never mandate the vaccine and that it's not even legal to do so. Well, clearly they're trying to mandate it, but they are right. It's not legal. It is not legal. And luckily for us, there's some brave people out there fighting for their liberties. I appreciate you people. I appreciate people who are standing up and fighting. I appreciate people who are willing to walk away from a job, not because they don't want the vaccine, although sometimes that's it. I appreciate the people who who are walking away because they don't want to be told what to do. They believe in body autonomy. Remember when that was a principle that every liberal believed in? So this vaccine has not been what they told us it was going to be. So what are they going to do? What are they going to do now? Uh, hey, 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 Joe, uh, everything we've done in the past two years has, has uh, failed and, and we've caused a lot of other problems. Uh, what, what do you think we should do now? Uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe we should throw people in COVID prison. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And let's make them so big red C's on their clothes so everyone in society will know they're unclean. Uh, Okay, yeah, I'll have the military commandeer a sewing factory and we'll start right on that. You know, I mean, these are probably the kind of conversations they're having in the White House. Nothing they've done has worked. So what do they do? They just ramp it up and do more of the insane things they've been doing more intensely. So are you fighting yet? Are you fighting? You listener, are you fighting this stuff yet? Like, I don't want to guilt trip you. I, I hate guilt trips. You know, it's, kind of, it's part of the reason I stopped going to church 20 years ago. I don't want to be guilt tripped. Guilt trippers suck. But we are losing our freedoms and liberty, and we're going to continue losing them if we don't put up more of a fight, there's a, there's a small portion of the population out there fighting and winning and we're grateful, but we all got to join this fight. Now I try to alert 10 to 15,000 of you every week to that reality on this podcast. And I try to do my own part. You know, I don't, I, I am unwilling to comply. I gave up compliance a long time ago. Last week, uh, my, my friends went to a concert. I had tickets. I didn't go. I didn't go because they are doing COVID passports. I could have just shown my, my vax card, but I refuse. Now, that's a small sacrifice, right? But small sacrifices end up adding up and can make a difference. We can fight with our dollars. Even if you're vaccinated, refuse to show that passport, right? You don't have to be anti-vax to be anti-tyranny, do you? I don't know. I've got friends who are firefighters and nurses who have lost their jobs because of these mandates. So I think that warrants fighting it. Like California's economy has been absolutely decimated. It's been another massive transfer of wealth from the middle class to the elite because of all the lockdowns that close small businesses and ruin jobs. What is this going to do when we're now throwing middle class workers out of the workforce in essential areas like firefighters and nurses. What's that going to do to our economy? We're just going to sit there and take it? I don't know. You know, your contribution could be something as small as writing a letter to your senator, right? That stuff counts. Or a donation to the opposition. It can be anything, but do something. And I don't, I don't mean to stress you guys out. I hope I'm not stressing you out because 
I, I know I stress my wife out. I stress her out because I talk about this stuff a lot, but it stresses her out and it doesn't stress me out. I don't stress. So I don't realize the stress I cause other people. And I don't stress because I have an awesome way of dealing with things that bother me. I have a philosophy. Number one, I exercise all the time. That helps you burn like that helps you burn stress, helps you chill. Um, I do yoga. That really helps. But the main thing is I have a philosophy. And that is when I have a problem, I look at it, I analyze it, I figure out what can I do to fix this fucking problem. Then I do that. I do the thing. Now, once I've done the thing, now I can forget about it because after that, it's out of my hands. I've done what I can. And I think that's a very simple philosophy and we would all be wise to incorporate that into our lives. And that applies to anything, that anything that's stressing you out, anything, work, school, kids, what can you do? Do it. Now forget about it. Out of your hands. So yeah, guys, this attack on our freedoms doesn't stress me out. It angers me, but I sleep like a baby. Okay. That, 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 that part's a lie. I don't stress. I do not sleep like a baby. I'm a terrible sleeper, but it's not because of stress. It's because I'm a 48 year old man with the bladder of a 98 year old man. And I get up at least six times a night to pee. It's reality. Also, sometimes I sleepwalk and sometimes I sleep eat. Sometimes I take the food that I'm eating and I come back to the bedroom naked, stand on the bed and smear it all over the walls. And sometimes I wake up and I go to sleep eat, but I forget what I'm doing and get confused and pee in the silverware drawer. I'm a freak. What can I say? Always been that way. It's actually genetic. Runs in my family. Really bizarre. Um, the, the administration's COVID policies, they've been a failure. There's, there's no two ways about it. They've been a failure. Argue about whether or not the vaccine is good or not, whatever, it doesn't matter. The policies have been a failure. The lockdowns, the school closures, the masking, mandatory vaccines, it's not gotten rid of COVID. So despite their failures, instead of, instead of them being like good human people and eating a little bit of humble pie and being like, yeah, you know, we fucked up. Hey, we fucked up. We fucked up. You know, if you, if you heard Fauci got, go on TV and say, fucked up, man. America's a forgiving society. I think people would forgive him, right? And we'd be more willing to listen to the next dumb shit thing he says. But they never do that. Instead, he gets on TV and says, hey, motherfuckers, I'm science. I'm science, motherfuckers. I'm science. That's what he says. That, that's, that's how he doubles down. I'm science. Listen to me. Put four masks on. Right? So they ramp up the rhetoric and the fear tactics and double down on stupid. And they're willing to ruin society with their mandates instead of just admitting they were wrong and trying something new. And here's the problem. Even if they wanted to fix things, and I'm skeptical of whether or not they even want to fix them. Like sometimes I don't, I don't want to get the tinfoil hat out, but sometimes I feel like this is intentional. Like they want to ruin society because it's all so dumb that I can't imagine they're that dumb. It's got to be intentional. It's like Biden's pullout of Af Afghanistan. I told you at the time, he didn't make, he, he didn't do something dumb. He did what he wanted to do. He knew but that by pulling out the troops before he pulled out the weapons, that there was going to be mass carnage. He knew that. He knew that. They all knew that. They wanted that. It's the same with this stuff. They have to know at this point 
they're making bad decisions, so it has to be conscious. But hypothetically, let's say that they actually do want to make things better. They can't. They're incapable. Government is incapable of fixing major things. And it's because the entire philosophy, the entire idea of centralized control of a population does not work. It never has worked. It can't work. It's a flawed philosophy. Government fails because it incentivizes and rewards failure. You know, you're raising your kids. If you give them a piece of cake every time they get an F, guess what? They're going to get a lot more Fs. You incentivize A's, so they work hard for those A's, right? But our government, so to speak, incentivizes, they give out cake when their students get Fs, right? If something in the public school or the public sector fails, like schools, if the school is not doing well, they don't get rid of the school. They don't punish the school. They throw more money at the school. They, they make more laws. They raise taxes. They put more money, time, and finances into that school. Their answer is always to throw more money at it and always expand government control. They are rewarding the F. They are rewarding the failure. In the private sector, if something's not working, if there's like, let's, let's say the restaurant industry, if, if you got a restaurant down on Catalina Boulevard and there's dozens of restaurants down there and nobody's coming to yours because your food sucks and your waitress is, is a bitch and the owner's a dickhead, well, guess what? That restaurant, it fails and it disappears. It ceases to exist. And then three months later, there's a better restaurant there that people want to go to. That's called the free market. There's no free market in government. Government has a monopoly and they incentivize failure. So of course there will be failure. Look at these career politicians. Fauci has failed over and over and over. He failed in the AIDS epidemic. He's been in there 40 years now and he's the highest paid fucking bureaucrat we have. We reward failure. So they don't get it and they're not going to get it or they're purposely doing this. But either way, the noose is being tightened around our, our freedoms, right? Now, my family and I, we're flying back to Panama soon to complete our visa process. I told you guys about that this summer. We, we've, we're getting our visas for Panama so that we can move there if we so choose. I'm nervous now that we might fly there, catch COVID, and then be stuck there before we're ready to move there because that's what they do now. If you have symptoms or not, if you test positive, can't come back. Sorry. Sorry, American. Can't come back unless you go down to the Mexican border and sneak in through Texas. Then you can get in. Then we're, then we'll give you a Medi-Cal and uh, we'll give you, give your kids education and give you some spending money. But um, if you're trying to fly back, Mr. Citizen, and you get a COVID positive test, sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. Get a hotel. Fuck you. So I'm nervous about that. Um, you know, when we flew home for Thanksgiving, <laughs> what a, I, I, I've never been filled with such rage that I had to choke down. I very rarely get worked up. But when I get worked up that once or twice a decade, I explode. And this time I got worked up and I had to choke it down because I was powerless. This 
Nazi stewardess, and I'm going to call her Nazi because she was power tripping, came up to me and reprimanded me because my mask fell off my nose. So I, I, I was wearing the mask. You got to wear the mask. I was wearing their useless mask. Wasn't being defiant. Just slid down because I got a big schnoz, a giant one. If you're, if you're looking on YouTube, here's the profile. It's huge. It's fantastic. Um, back in my 20s, I did a little modeling, <laughs> made a little money because I was told I was very symmetrical. Well, symmetry means balance. And I got a giant horse peen. So, of course, I'm going to have a giant nose to balance that out. So, it's hard to keep a, a mask over this schnoz for six hours. And it slipped. She scolded me. I rolled my eyes. I pulled it back up. Didn't give her any fight. But then three hours later, it slipped again and I didn't notice. And this fucking power-hungry, lunatic, Nazi B-word sought me out like a heat-sinking, sinking seek. Seeking, it's a heat-seeking missile, sought me out, came back to me and said, you know, do you want me to find you? I can find you. You know, I can put you on a no-fly list for this. Is that what you want? You want to be on a no-fly list? So she actually said those words to me. She actually threatened to put me on a terrorist watch list and ruin my life and my family's lives because I got a fat D, which made my face grow this huge hog and my mask fights with it. The nose doesn't like the mask. They fight. Not my fault. But that makes me a terrorist? Really? I didn't have COVID. I can't spread COVID if I don't have COVID. You made me show you a test before I got on the fucking plane. I'm a terrorist because my nose is coming out saying, hey, hello. That makes me a terrorist? You know, put me on a no flight list. I, I, I wanted to use all kinds of words. I wanted to punch the guy standing next to her because I would not punch a lady, but I didn't. I kept my cool because I, because, because I am cool. I'm the fucking Fonz. Hey, I'm, I, I, know, I know when I'm outmatched. I had no power in that situation. I was powerless. So why fight it? If I fought it, I was going to end up on a terrorist watch list. But people are just shitty, man. And lady... Masks don't work. Those cloth masks, they don't work. You power tripping, bitch. Doesn't work. Even your boss says so. The CEO of Spirit Airlines and American Airlines testified before Congress that the masks don't help on a plane. Listen to the clip. My colleague's comments uh, on the quality of the air, it's uh, the, the statistics I recall is 99.97% of airborne pathogens uh, are captured by the HEPA filtering system and it's turned over every two or three minutes. We use UT Southwestern and Stanford School of Medicine. Uh, so uh, we just add to this prestigious list. But um, yeah, I, I think the case uh, is very strong that uh, masks don't add much, if anything, uh, in the uh, air cabin environment. It's very safe and very high quality com compared to uh, uh, any other indoor setting. Mr. Parker. Uh, I, I concur. The, air, the aircraft is the safest place you can be. Um, it's true of all of our aircraft. They all have these HEPA filters in the same airflow. But hey, I guess that's where we are in America today. Ignore science. Ignore the science. Ignore the data. Follow a narrative at all costs. Annoying.
All right, guys. Enough of me. Let's bring on Scott Horton. He's going to teach you how they've been doing the same shit, spreading narratives and, and lies as it relates to foreign policy for decades. Let's talk to Scott. Guys, on the show today, we have the most knowledgeable man in the world concerning U.S. policy in the Middle East. He's the founder of Antiwar.com. He's the director of the Libertarian Institute, author of Fool's Errand, and this book right here, if you're looking on YouTube, enough already. He's the host of The Scott Horton Show, and he absolutely destroyed and embarrassed neocon war hawk Bill Crystal in a recent debate. Uh, thank you, Scott, for joining the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've wanted to have you for a while. So before we get into all the foreign policy stuff, can you just tell me how it felt to just get the chance to debate someone like Bill Crystal and just, I mean, really, you humiliated him. How, how did that feel? Oh, it's pretty good. Um, you know, I knew about it for about two years because it was announced half a year in advance and then everything got postponed because of the COVID and everything oh, no like kidding. that. Ah. So, you know, I had a long time to worry about it, although I didn't bother to start pre to prepare for it until right at the very end there. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to spend too much time on it, but, you know, the issue was coming up like, hey, is that still going to happen? And when is that? And all that kind of thing. So mostly I was just relieved that I didn't blow it. You know, yeah. like if I forgot what I was going to say in the middle of saying something, lost my train of thought or like just completely failed to address the most important thing or, you know, some kind of thing like that. So, yeah, no, you I knew that if I just said what I was trying to say that I would win and it would be OK. You know what I mean? So that was really my only thing was I was relieved that after all of that build up to it, that it didn't do didn't go badly. <laughs> you know, it definitely didn't go badly. Like it went badly for him. Like I didn't know it, there was two years leading up to that. That's that's embarrassing for that guy that he had two years and he, he came up with. I mean, he had nothing. He had nothing. His, the best point he tried to make was about World War Two. We'll get into that later. Um, and and that that was pointless. Um, but one thing that I love that you brought up in this debate is is Bill Crystal in the past couple of years has gotten affection from the left and the, the corporate media because of his heavy criticism of Trump. But it was a very special moment in the debate when you pointed out to him that Donald Trump's rise to power has been a direct result of all the wars that he and all his his war hawk buddies put us into with bad policy. And he didn't re really know what to do with that very obvious reality. And what's amazing to me is that all those people, the entire media, they never have seemed to come to that very obvious conclusion that they are the reason Trump got into power. Yeah. Can you elaborate on on that connection? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just the resentment over the failed wars that we shouldn't have fought and all of the economic crises. They just we've had the centrist so-called moderates, the Clintons, the Bushes, McCain and Biden and these type people have been in charge for 30 years straight since the end of the Cold War. And they ruined everything. And then but especially the neoconservatives, um, you know, they're doubly and triply responsible in a way that the Democrats, in a way, even aren't. And that is because and as I mentioned to Crystal there, that, you know, as I guess not everybody really knows this, the term is kind of abused. The real neoconservatives is no more than 100 men. It's this tiny little faction 
in Washington, D.C., in New York City, and essentially nowhere else in the country. But there are a lot of Republican hawks. And the Republican hawks got to get organized and they got to get angry and they got to get afraid and, and mad at somebody to want to go and kill. And so the, what the neoconservatives did, of course, was and it's funny because this is almost gone now. This got washed away, I guess, in the Russia hysteria. You might have forgot it ever happened. Hmm. It was the absolute freak out over radical Islam. Right. Oh, the Muslims are coming. And the thing about this was, of course, that bin Laden and his men were just a tiny group of bandits in exile on the Afghan-Pakistan border. The Joint Special Operations Command could have been done with them by the end of the year if Bush had sure. let them do their job. Um, but the neoconservatives enemies, i.e. Israel's enemies, are vast and numerous and all Muslim. And so what we'll do is we'll, you know, their point of view was exploit your fear and your grief over September 11th and do everything they can to conflate Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and their 400 friends like 400 individual human men with no state backing, no official state backing anywhere in the world and conflate them with the Taliban regime, which did not attack us, and then immediately conflate them through the use of this sleight of hand about radical Islam, this propaganda um, that it's now bin Laden is interchangeable with Saddam Hussein, with Muammar Gaddafi, with Bashar al-Assad, with anybody that you want to go to war with in the Middle East. Al-Shabaab, this local insurgency in Somalia, which is a result of Bush's intervention in the first place, of course. Well, they're linked to Al-Qaeda and we get to fight them, too. And so it was all a put on, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and what's really funny about it is, of course, that Israel's enemies are led by the Iranians, the Shiites. But Al-Qaeda are the radical Sunni side. And so, you know, they say there's no daylight between Israel's interests and America's interests. And there are, you know, Fort Apache out there representing Western civilization, leading the front against the Islamist barbarians or whatever it is. Mm. But actually, their enemies are the enemies of our enemies. Right. And instead, the pro-Israel factions in America keep having the American government or, you know, lobbying it and, and pressuring it to, you know, essentially fight Israel's battles for them in a way that only empowers Al-Qaeda and only also empowers Iran on the other side as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not that, you know, just because the neoconservatives serve the interests of Israel doesn't mean they serve them well at all. They've done nothing but kind of ruin everything for everybody over there. Yeah, you, you said a lot right there, right? So number one, you, you're talking about driving fear and, and getting away from foreign policy. Like that's that's what they do. That's what we're living right now with COVID. They drive fear, create hysteria, and then they can control you. That's what they did for 15 years. And I'm sorry because I got distracted onto the Middle East when the point was supposed to come back around to this was what Trump exploited. Donald yes. Trump was like the, the right-wing nationalist that the neoconservatives were posing as only without any of the sophistication at all, right? right. So he, he built his career on going on talk, his political career going on talk radio, accusing Barack Obama of being a secret Muslim from Kenya, serving mm -hmm. the goals of the terrorists and the Muslim Brotherhood and all of this stuff. This is all coming from Frank Gaffney and the neoconservatives. It was Bill Kristol and Frank Gaffney who pretended to believe that some Sufi mosque 
being put up in a room, you know, in, in one office in a giant building in New York, a few blocks away from the World Trade Center site was somehow the Islamist movement's uh, triumph over America and gloating and building a mosque on the ashes of the World Trade Center. Mm. Style. Total nonsense. Another major thing they did was they passed legislation and they pushed to pass legislation in several of the 50 states, maybe more than half of them, to ban Sharia law. Right. I remember that. You need mm. to know that you are about to be enslaved under Sharia law any day now if your yep. heroic Republican state senators don't race to pass this new law to prevent that from happening. And yep. this is the and kind of thing believe that a lot of people believe that. Yeah, it is. It's called flooding the zone, right? It's full spectrum dominance like our military wants to have in Eurasia. It's full spectrum dominance over your brain. It's come at you from every angle and pretend again. Bin Laden and his friends were this tiny group of bandits. Mm -hmm. Well, where does that leave the rest of the Muslim world? Every single nation state in the Muslim world is run by a sock puppet dictatorship of the United States of America, less Iran and Syria. And before Iraq, but that was only because the Americans pushed Saddam Hussein out. They could have brought him right back into the cold if they'd wanted to. The Iranians yeah. are the only ones who've declared independence from us. Even the Syrians were cooperative with the war on terror. They famously tortured innocent mistaken identity captives for George W. Bush, you know, back in, in the days of his government. So the only real Middle Eastern government independent from the USA at all is Iran. And that's the one we want and, the most. Yeah, but, but they pretend. Yeah. And of course, they hate yeah. Al-Qaeda as much as we do. Mm -hmm. But then our, the neocons pretended that the Muslim world was united against us, that the September 11th attack wasn't this last gasp, Hail Mary uh, attempt by this tiny group of mercenaries. Mm -hmm. No, this was the vanguard leading edge of the Islamist revolution taking over the planet, right? Like the John Birch Society in the Cold War showing the map turning red as the commies take yeah. over the whole world. That's what they did with the Muslims. They And they really did this. The map turning green as the as, as though Islamic civilization in the world is one thing. And as though it's all on the upswing right now, dominant yeah. and taking over and spreading, which is, of course, a ridiculous joke. It's completely divided in 100 pieces, again, all dominated by the United States and their friends. Yeah. And you mentioned something earlier. You know, you, you referred a couple of times to Osama as a small group of bandits. And the fact is, we after 9-11, we had a chance to get him a few months later. And I believe it was Tora Bora. Like we had him cornered. And it seems we purposefully let him escape, maybe. And yes, I'm, I'm wondering, is that. Is that because we had not yet made enough money for the military machine or we needed to keep justifying other wars or what exactly well, happened yes. there, in your opinion? Well, I mean, the money is not first. I mean, there's, you know, as uh, as uh, Winston Smith, uh, his torturer O'Brien explains in 1984 that power is not a means. It is an end. And so that's, you know, at the end of the day, yes, they're all cashing in, but I don't want to like overly simplify it in a way that it's all just about profits, greedy profits, because it's there's more to it than that. There's ideology and, and you know, a real belief in American superiority and dominance and these kinds of things are, are also at play. Israel's interests, of course, are also at play and other things. But primarily, I mean, you got it right in your second part there is that what it really was, was they wanted to go to Iraq. And, you know, something 
that I think is a big part of why September 11th happened that gets overlooked is that when the CIA was saying, hey, we really need to pay attention to this bin Laden guy, the neoconservatives led by Paul Wolfowitz and then, of course, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, not a neocon, but his partner at, at defense, uh, they would say, no, 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 the CIA, those boobs out there in Langley, they're trying to get you distracted, bogged down in Afghanistan on this stupid mission over this nobody bin Laden. Who cares about that? Keep your eye on the prize. Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. We've got to go back to Baghdad. So that was part of why they didn't really focus on bin Laden was because the idea was if we get bogged down in Afghanistan, how are we ever going to get to Baghdad? Right. Then because of their criminal negligence, the attack happens on their watch and they go, oh, well, great. We'll just exploit this attack waged by some Saudis and Egyptians out of Afghanistan. And we'll just say that Saddam Hussein is their friend. Mm -hmm. And then this is why they let bin Laden go. And it's a circumstantial case. It's not ironclad, but it's a strong circumstantial case. I make it in my book, Fool's Aaron, and in the new one, Enough Already as well, that they, first of all, they should have gone straight to the Nangahar province, to Tora Bora, the lion's den hideout that everybody knew was bin Laden's hideout. ABC, CNN, and the Independent, and everybody had interviewed him there before in the 1990s and everything. And, and that was their history going back to the 80s Afghan war where America had supported their forces. So they knew where to go, but they didn't go there until the end of November. They said, oh, we got word that maybe he's at Tora Bora. Hmm. And they started to go there then. And then when they got there, they had the CIA Special Activities Division para, uh, paramilitaries and the Delta Force. But when Delta Force Team B got there, they pulled Team A right out. Right. And they said, why'd you do that? And they go, well, we wanted to. It was a it was a psychological operation. We wanted them to think we were leaving. <laughs> well, but yeah, but they're going to know tomorrow when we're shooting at them that we didn't leave. But now we only have half our team. Like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? So right. then and I'll, I'll try to do this briefly here. Jawbreaker by Gary Bernson, the second CIA commander on scene and kill bin Laden by Dalton Fury, which is the alias for Thomas Greer, who was the Delta Force commander on the scene. They both wrote, we just couldn't understand it. It was the most mysterious thing in the world. Over and over again, they begged and begged and begged for reinforcements and couldn't get them. And they were available. There were rangers already holding down thousands of rangers at the Bagram Air Base, just a, uh, like 100 miles away. Uh, maybe 200 miles away. Then he had the Green Berets were all up there chasing their tail, fighting the Taliban up in Mazari Sharif for General Dostum, the communist war criminal, for no good reason whatsoever when they weren't in our way at all. And you had uh, the 75th Rangers down in Kandahar province, along with General Mattis and his 4,000 marching Marines. Mm -hmm. And Mattis later complained that he wanted to go and was forbidden to go. And do you, so, let, me, let me ask, let me interrupt Th those two guys. Do you think guys like that, when they say we just couldn't understand it, they're on the ground there. Do you think they really can't understand it? Or are they playing dumb or are they in on it? Well, I got to tell you, you know how sometimes you ever read a book by a former CIA officer and they'll leave the blacked out redactions in the book because the publisher thinks of that as like good PR. Mm -hmm. and like the book is somewhat censored. You know, when you read Jawbreaker, he gets right to the part where he's really mad that he can't get reinforcements. And then there's six lines blacked out. Gotcha. 
Yeah, and so. so, you know, you get the idea that they know good and well that this is not quite right here. You know what's going on. And Greer, in fact, elaborates that, look, we're talking about Delta. OK, this is with the Navy SEAL Team six. This is top tier special operations forces. When they ask for permission to do this or that on a tactical level to achieve their objective, get it. maybe it's something that they do have to ask permission for. The answer is always yes. Yeah. Always always except for this three-week period at Tora Bora in Afghanistan in the Nangarhar province in November and December yeah. of 2001. In that case, it was, no, you can't turn east before you go north. No, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. You can't engage with this or that. Yeah, so in they're fact, the tactical experts. Here. They're the tactical experts. They're making their tactical recommendations. Their recommendations are always accepted, but in this case, politicians are overruling them right. for right. what Absolutely. reason. Yeah. And then, so two more things here real quick is the first one is I just read this uh, a few weeks ago in Task and Purpose, the military news site. And if I had known this, I'd forgotten this. Maybe I had just never heard this before and it didn't really occur. I don't to believe me. for a second you've forgotten but, anything ever. <laughs> Your well, memory is amazing. I don't know. But so, I mean, and that's possible. I think I might not have ever known this and I had just never wondered exactly this question. But I read this story and it was about the Air Force, the Special Operations Air Force controller on the ground with his laser pointers designating the targets and in charge of all air traffic control for eastern Afghanistan. Again, we're talking December 2001 here. Now, at that time, there was a friendly fire incident somewhere else in the country. And so there was a temporary moratorium on airstrikes everywhere in the country, except at Tora Bora, where the hunt for bin Laden was going on. So what that meant was this guy had every plane in Afghanistan available. And he mm -hmm. was this one guy was air traffic control controlling the entire sky and calling in the strikes to uh, hit the guys at Tora Bora. And as I can see in the book, geez, they could have got him. You know what I mean? You don't need Rangers if, you, or if you're dropping 15,000 pound bombs, which they did drop one daisy cutter bomb like that. Um, but here's the new information I didn't realize. They called him out on the 8th of December. And in the article, they don't even make this seem controversial at all. Yep. And then after the 8th of December, no more airstrikes. They called me out of there. And that was the that was the end of airstrikes. Well, but as is widely agreed by the participants, bin Laden didn't escape until December the 17th. Oh, wow. Hmm. So the, the Delta Force and the CIA were left to rely on none of their own guys for reinforcements. You know, Greer talks about he's got Alabama National Guard Green Berets. These guys are hunters. These guys can handle themselves. Maybe they're not the top, top, tippy, top tier special operations forces, but he talks about these big old tobacco spitting guys with their big red beards and their giant rifles. These men can handle themselves. You guys go around that way, right? But they're not allowed to do that. They're not allowed to do that at any time. These guys all have to hang back and instead they have to rely on local Afghan militia guys who are double dealing and go home every night and get nowhere. And the thing's yeah. a joke. But then one more thing now, mm -hmm. and I know you've heard this and everyone in your audience has heard this too. It's like hypnosis. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they get the American media to do it. And I don't know how they get the American people to go along with this kind of thing. But I know you've heard it a million times yourself. Once Osama bin Laden and his men slipped right. across the border into Pakistan. Well, that was just the end of that. Why? And you're just you're just supposed to leave it at that. Yeah. You're never supposed to wonder the next sentence. Well, why can't the Delta Force walk after them? 
Especially when what we go everywhere problem? else. Yeah. Yeah. What was um, magical about that line? That's right. It's they act as though, oh, it's the state line and you're the local sheriff and you can't cross from Mississippi and Alabama or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's not the problem. We're talking mm -hmm. about the Delta Force. They can go where they want. And it, we're not talking about the Russian border. No, we're taught where actually Vladimir Putin would have helped our guys. But that wasn't it. We're talking about going into Pakistan, a friendly nation in which, yes, they were supporters of the Taliban, but they weren't direct supporters of Al Qaeda any more than the Americans were in the past. And the Americans had already read the dictator Pakistan, the uh, Musharraf, the riot act and said, you're going to do everything we say. And he said, of course, I will. I'm at your service. And Robert Grenier, who was the CIA um, station chief in Islamabad had already arranged with the Pakistani army and separately with the Pakistani Frontier Corps for what they call deconfliction to make sure that when the Delta Force chases the bad guys across the line, that we don't shoot our own guys and we make sure to deconflict of who are the good guys and who are the bad guys when the inevitable chase takes place here. And then it didn't. And the reason why is because Greer and his men and, and Bernson and his men were forbidden from crossing that line. And it's in the book, but also Greer, anybody can look this up on YouTube where again, Dalton Fury is the alias. Just type in Dalton Fury 60 minutes and you'll see where he explains the whole thing to Scott Pelley. And he's got a model of the mountains and he goes, they went that way and we were going to do this. We were going to mine all the three or four valleys out of the, out of there that they could have possibly taken. We were going to get in our Chinooks. This is a Delta force. We were going to get in our Chinooks go over the mountains and then meet them coming over from the east. How do you like that, smart guy? All of this, they were ready to go. Permission denied, denied, denied. And the reason why is because they wanted you and your mom afraid that Saddam Hussein was going to give Osama bin Laden chemical weapons or nuclear weapons to use against you and your town. And how are you supposed yeah. to be afraid of that if the Delta Force already had brought his skull back to New Haven? Yeah, when you, when you combine all of that, I mean, all of that evidence you don't need to speculate when you take all of that combined with the fact that saddam had zero to do with 9 11 it becomes clear that everything led back to wanting to get saddam everything they did was about getting saddam so they couldn't mess up that plan um i i want to i want to ask you about one more thing about the middle east and i want to get a little bit into russia because that's what's going on right now um and i want you to dumb this answer down for us because it's confusing to me. And I, I've heard the explanation a million times and I, I, I've heard your podcast. I've heard you on part of the problem. I've read, read your books, watched your debate. This one still confuses me. Okay, sure. Al-Qaeda, ISIS. Um, we kind of created both of them. Al-Qaeda, we fought against and we fought on their side in separate wars and sometimes at the same time. How did we create Al-Qaeda and how did we end up fighting both for them and against with them and against them. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll try to do this in sort of as fast to forward as mode <laughs> as I can here um, without leaving too much out. But, you know, in the 1970s, there was the church committee hearings and the Rockefeller hearings about the abuses of power by the FBI and the CIA, including MKUltra and Operation Chaos against the anti-war movement and all these kinds of things, COINTELPRO, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, CIA covert operations were somewhat restricted after that. So they just said, well, we'll just outsource everything to the Saudis and we'll have them pay for everything that we're doing. And, and of course, the Americans had inherited the Saudis and the, the Muslim Brotherhood and all of those operations from the British after World War II. 
There's a great book called Devil's Game, How the United States Helped to Unleash Fundamentalist Islam by Robert Dreyfus. That's just really the best on this. Um, and basically, you know, the idea had been all through the Cold War to use Islamists to disrupt the nationalists and the socialists to keep them divided and conquered and in, you know, dominated by foreign powers, us. And so, um, you know, for example, Saddam Hussein, they helped the Baathists come to power in Iraq and gave Saddam Hussein lists of communists and whatever, like Pol Pot, like anybody with glasses, round them up and kill them, this kind of thing. Um, you know, CIA is good like that, um, like the communists, um, killing communists, but in the same sort of fashion, I mean. Um, so, but that was the idea. So then when the CIA was restricted in some of their powers, they outsourced even more of this to Saudi Arabia and mostly for coups in Africa. They had a group called the Safari Club, which was named after an actual place called the Safari Club, I think in Kenya, it was just this country club or whatever for these rich guys. And that became the name of their little sort of uh, sideshow covert operations division there. And that grew into the effort to back not just the Mujahideen of Afghanistan in the Afghan war in the 1980s, but also the operation to create what was called the Arab Afghan army, which was Islamist extremists from all across the Middle East to send them to Afghanistan to fight against to fight for the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet communists and their sock puppets in the North, mostly the Tajiks, people like General Dostum. So America helped to support not just the Afghan Mujahideen, but tens of thousands, the Saudis, the Pakistanis, and the Americans, and the English too, all worked together uh, to support this movement. Then at the end of the war, a lot of them, you know, most of them went home or, you know, uh, wherever the hell they went, prison. Um, and then, but, you know, some of them like Bin Laden were, you know, wealthy and connected. So he went home to um, Saudi Arabia and then America launched Iraq War One. you know, shortly after. It's just a couple, you know, a year and a half after the end of the war in Afghanistan. And that meant America occupying massive bases in Saudi Arabia, which to Bin Laden and others like him was a massive affront because this is not just you know, their country, their homeland, but their holy land, the birthplace of their religion, Mecca, Medina, uh, you know, the, the birthplace of Muhammad and then the place where he founded the religion there. And so um, they want us the hell off of their land. So essentially sure. they were kind of reactivated against their former masters. And gotcha. what happened was there was a group called the Azam group um, that was led by a Palestinian named Abdullah Azam. And he died and bin Laden took his group over. And then he merged it with Ayman al-Zawahiri's faction of Islamic Jihad from Egypt. Uh, and so this was the core group that became al-Qaeda that attacked us all through the 1990s. It was Egyptian Islamic Jihad and this Azam group of bin Laden's, you know, bin Laden financing most of it because he was the that we That boy. we financed and supplied weapons to to fight Russia, essentially. That's right. And see, okay. here's the, the rub, and I cover this in both books, is that Bill Clinton's government in the 1990s was way too clever by half kind of a thing because these guys had already started attacking us. Their first attack was they assassinated a right-wing radical rabbi named Rabbi Kahane in New York City in 1990, who was, you know, uh, actually his political party was banned by the Israeli Supreme Court for being fascist is how right-wing he was, um, and uh, the Koch party. 
And then after that, the first World Trade Center attack. No, no, no. A failed attack on the Radisson in Yemen in 92. Then the first World Trade Center attack here. Then the uh, uh, National Guard barracks in Saudi Arabia. The uh, Kobar Towers attack, which they blamed on Iran, which killed 19 airmen occupying a Saudi base to bomb Iraq from uh, in 1996. The embassy attacks in Dar es Salaam and, and um, Nairobi in uh, uh, August, I guess July or August 1998, and then the USS Cole attack. So they were attacking us all through the 1990s. But meanwhile, Bill Clinton's still backing them anyway, as though this is not a problem. Or as though, you know what, if we back them, maybe we, we can like buy their love and loyalty and then they'll leave us alone. And so supported them in Bosnia and in Kosovo. In Bosnia, that's where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed- Just, just who, keep supporting them just out of flat out ignorance, just bad or, decision making. Well, look, I mean, I think a lot of what the CIA does is like when you're a little kid and you know you're doing something bad and you and your friend kind of look at each other and giggle and then you do it anyway kind of thing. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that. There's no accountability. They know they get away with it. And right. they go, you know what? Like, look, if we use these Islamists in Central Asia to destabilize these countries, that's a good way to keep Russia and China out is to make it too difficult for them to get in there. Right. And so, you know, that's the kind of game that they're playing. As Dick Cheney himself said, you know, you have to go to the dark side and do these covert activities and do what you otherwise would think is wrong in order to accomplish your goals, which is, of course, his exact same definition of terrorism, right? People who are willing to kill innocent people in order to accomplish yeah. their goals. That's the phrase he used, accomplish oh, yeah. their goal. Yeah. Justify and, terrorism and people to do by it, stopping you know? terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So. Yeah, they just think they're smart. So in, in Kosovo, they're trying to screw over the Serbs in order to hurt the Russians. And so, you know, yeah, if the Kosovo Liberation Army is tied to Al-Qaeda and, and bin Ladenite fighters left over from the Mujahideen days in the 80s, that's fine. We'll use them. And then the same thing in Chechnya. You know, Bill Clinton had the American people pick up the entire tab for Russia's war against the Chechens. You might remember from back then, this is how Vladimir Putin came to power. He was in charge of the 1997 and the 1999 war in Chechnya. And then Yeltsin made him prime minister and then appointed him president and resigned on New Year's 2000, three months before his he had to stand for election. He's been in power ever since. Hmm. Um, that's where he came from. Well, guess what? America was picking up the entire tab for that war. But also, as Putin well knows, as he explained to Oliver Stone with a straight face, because it's true, the CIA and the Saudis were supporting the terrorists in Chechnya against Russia at the very same time, too. Got to keep that pipeline from running north through there, from mm -hmm. Tajikistan up through Russia and bypass our European friends and this kind of politics. And so, in fact, in the book, I quote in Fool's Aaron, I think I have the direct quote of, of two or three of them, or I certainly have all the footnotes in Fool's Aaron, where Bill Clinton and representatives Tom Lantos and Brad Sherman both Democrats, all three of them after September 11th said something to the effect of, geez, how could these Muslims attack us after everything that we've done for them lately? Hmm. Right. But the thing is, the reason they were attacking us was because we had these bases in Saudi to bomb Iraq because we were supporting Israel in their domination of the Palestinians and the Lebanese because we supported all these kings. So and were we using the bases in Saudi Arabia to support Israel? 
Is that the deal? Well, no, to bomb Iraq in the no-fly zones and contain Iraq and enforce the blockade all through the 1990s. And Iraq that's what ultimately half. pissed off and turned bin Laden against us was these that's bases. Right. That's right. Because see, after Iraq War One, they didn't leave. They said they were going to leave, but they didn't leave. In well, fact, you want to get into this? Do we ever leave? <laughs> I mean, we never leave anywhere. So right. they probably so should have known that was, ahead of time. Yeah. What happened was at the end of the war, well, first of all, go back to why America supported Saddam's war against Iran. There's a revolution in Iran in 79, and the American sock puppet, the Shah, was overthrown, and the Ayatollah came to power. The Americans actually knew the Ayatollah from the old days. He'd helped them overthrow the government the last time, and they thought they could get along with him. But then the hostage crisis broke out in, uh, you know, 10 months later. In November of 1979, um, uh, there were riots. I'm trying to go fast. I'll skip a couple of things. But the point is that the Americans were humiliated by uh, the hostage situation in Iran. At the same time, 79, summer 79, Saddam Hussein comes to power in a bloody coup d'etat. Now, he's got a real problem with the Iranian revolution. He's a Sunni sitting on a Sunni dominated dictatorship. 20% of the population of Iraq are Sunni dominating 60% supermajority Shiite Arabs and also 20% Kurds who are Sunnis, but they're Kurds, not Arabs, a different ethnicity there. And, you know, typically on the outs rather than tight allies with the ruling regime. So Saddam Hussein has a problem because that's 60% Shiite majority. They're dominant in all the land from Baghdad east to, to Iran, down to Kuwait and over to Iran. Now, that Iranian revolution might roll right into Iraq. So what does he do? He asks Jimmy Carter for permission first, and then he launches a war and he conscripts all those Shiites and sends them to war against Iran instead to contain that revolution, to try to overthrow the revolution, but at the very least to prevent it from spreading to Baghdad, right? So that was why Jimmy Carter supported him. And that was why Ronald Reagan supported him all through the 1980s. Remember, when, Iran, when Ronald Reagan sold weapons to Iran, that was really backstabbing their real friend, Saddam. They were really supporting Saddam. When they sold missiles to Iran, that was just a bribe to try to get their hostages back. And it was the Israelis who were really taking Iran's side, while the Americans were taking uh, Saddam Hussein's side and trying to contain that Iranian revolution. Okay, now, end of the war, Hussein gets in a dispute with Kuwait over war debts and over overproduction of shared oil wells mm -hmm. and of them being extremely rude in their dealings with him and whatever. I won't elaborate for time. But so he invades and we have Iraq War One. He invades Kuwait. America insists you have to back out again, puts together the giant UN uh, coalition, builds up their forces in Saudi Arabia, invades Kuwait and Iraq to force the Iraqis out of Kuwait, smash their army to smithereens, kill 50,000 something people. And we justified that war with absolute lies about smashing babies in hospitals and whatnot. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, and and that Saddam Hussein had lined up all of his tanks and was preparing to roll on Riyadh. And then he was going to dominate all Middle Eastern oil supplies and next the world. It was he was the reincarnation of Adolf Hitler himself. They you know, always are. This. Yeah. And never told the people that complicated story about the war debts with Kuwait and all of this stuff that was behind it. Um, and I cover all that in the new book. Um, and then but so at the end of the war, Bush senior gets on the president gets on voice of America and urges the Shiites and Kurds to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. And they drop leaflets over the army divisions, um, you know, Shiite dominated army divisions 
to to encourage them to march on Baghdad and get rid of the dictator. But then they choke and change their mind. Here's why. The Iraqi Shiites that Saddam Hussein was afraid were going to join with the Iranian Shiite revolution and overthrow him. Some of them had. And they were now coming back across the border 10 years later, leading the revolution against him. So Bush and Baker and Scowcroft Senior, we're talking about now, 1991, mm-hmm. the spring of 91, aftermath of Iraq War One. They said, oh, no, we're now importing the Iranian Shiite revolution that we just spent 10 years trying to contain. Oops. <laughs> so they called it off. And then okay. they let Saddam Hussein slaughter more than 100,000 people with his tanks and helicopters in order to suppress the insurrection. And then what they do, speaking of war propaganda, They acted as though Hussein was just going to keep killing them until they were all dead. But that's not what was going on. He was putting down an insurrection that the Americans had encouraged to rise up. But once the insurrection was over, it was over. But the Americans said, no, now we have to stay at our bases in Saudi Arabia to contain Saddam Hussein and to patrol these no-fly zones over northern and southern Iraq in the name of protecting the Kurds and the Shiites, which was basically a line of garbage. And then after the fake, so hold on, hold on. If it's yeah. not about protecting the Kurds and Shiites, because clearly it doesn't seem like it is. What, what is the ultimate goal? Just to ah, control well, the whole, re, the whole region well, so yeah, for oil? Or well, there's, there's two, there's two main ones. One is to yes, dominate Middle Eastern oil supplies. Not so much so that Americans, you know, the, the leftists always get this wrong, that it's like no blood for oil, that this is all about cheap gasoline at the pump for you and me, something like that. But that's not it. It's dominating this massive percentage of the world's global daily supply of energy, which means that we can lord it over our friends and enemies. This is, as Dick Cheney so said, power. September 11th, 1990, September 11th, 1990, before the Congress, this is the world's most important energy choke point. Is this Persian Gulf? If we don't control it, somebody else will, and we won't tolerate that. So then, but then, but you can control it with one aircraft carrier, right? You don't need to have all these bases there. And this is where Israel comes in because after the giant fake assassination attempt against George Bush Sr. in Kuwait in 1993, which never happened, the Israelis, but I guess Bill Clinton believed it. I don't know. Um, But the Israelis were able to convince him to adopt this new policy of dual containment. Because America just finished smashing Iraq's military so badly, they are now not strong enough to contain Iran. So now America has to stay in Saudi to contain them both. So here, Bill Clinton, when he was running, he should have kept his full mouth shut. And I hate Bill Clinton, by the way, but this is just a fact, the history of what happened here. He said something in the campaign about, yeah, maybe we can normalize relations with Saddam Hussein and bring him back in from the cold. And what are you going to do? Keep him under blockade forever or something? So the Kuwaitis, that was why they ginned up the fake assassination story, was in order to prevent the Americans from making friends with Saddam again. And the FBI went along with it. The CIA originally debunked it and then said, fine, whatever, guys, if you want to pretend to believe this. And then based on that, they and it was at the Israelis' insistence that they implemented what was called dual containment. In other words, we can never make peace with Iraq and we can never make peace with Iran. We got a cold war with Iran and a warm one with Iraq. We're still bombing them from the air all the time uh, and and blockading them. 
uh, and we can never make peace with either until they succumb, give in, regime change day comes, whatever it is. Now, this is what has got all of America's former mercenaries turned against the United States. Is And bin Laden said all through the 1990s that the entire point of attacking America was to goad us into invading the Middle East and staying until we're bled all the way out and forced out the long way and the hard way, the way we had helped them to do to the Soviets. In fact, um, it seems like he succeeded in that. I mean, yeah, there's no there's no two ways about that. Well, we're not all the way out yet, but it certainly has played out essentially as he wanted. But I mean, he said, um, you know, people it's now I think widely accepted that bin Laden's men were the ones who shot down the helicopters in Black Hawk Down in Somalia in 1993. And he told the journalist Abdelbari Atwan that I was trying to create, I was trying to provoke the Americans into invading Somalia. You know, they were there on this humanitarian mission that special operations forces run around chasing individuals. But he was trying to provoke a war. Mm-hmm. And he said, we wanted to fight a war of attrition against the Americans. We were so disappointed when they turned around and left. And so then when September 11th happened, all the American hawks said, oh, bin Laden said we're a paper tiger. Bin Laden said we're a bunch of wimps. Bin Laden said if he just hits us hard enough, we'll turn and run away. And that means we've got to go big. We got to go double. We got to go quadruple. We can never leave. But of course, he was taunting them. That was what he was trying to do was to get them to destroy the American empire in the only way that it could be destroyed short of H-bomb war, which is overextension and bankruptcy. We're we're 30 trillion in debt now. When the war started, do you know what that number was? I don't. Oh, something like 10. Okay. So we've tripled it. Yeah, Trip, yeah, like tripled eight, the debt. Eight, uh, yeah, eight quadrupled. Like and look, remember, yeah. part of the propaganda again was to conflate Al Qaeda with the Taliban, that these guys are a bunch of cavemen from the town of Bedrock. I think that's one of the reasons that there's so many 9 11 truthers. They're like, you're telling me a bunch of cavemen, a bunch of hillbillies from the town of Bedrock on the far side of the planet who don't even have electricity hate me because I'm free and did all of this kind of thing. But that wasn't it. Bin Laden was the son of a billionaire. Ayman al-Zawahiri was a prominent heart surgeon from Cairo. These men were educated men. Bin Laden had an advanced degree in engineering. Yeah. These guys knew the world. They knew what they were doing. They were trying to replicate the folly that we had helped them to perpetrate against against the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union, against us again. And we did it. We went for it. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole lie of or the whole line of they hate you for your freedom just never really made any sense. But that never that never stops the the media from taking a line and running with it. And they end up convincing people like people. People are easily convinced. And what I'm what I'm gathering from you, what from everything you discuss ever is every enemy that we've fought or or said is our enemy has been an enemy of our own creation and then when we fight them we create the next enemy so oh yeah so check out here here's who's our next enemy who's our next enemy from all this well wait so so one more step before the next one is the last one was so bush as we talked about exploited uh bin laden's escape which he had abetted to lie us into iraq in now we're talking about junior in 93 Mm -hmm. So what happens? What is it? What is it that takes place? Everybody knows Iraq War II was a big bloody mess. But what was it that happened? Well, what happened was he picked up right where his father left off. 
And he brought that Shiite revolution, that Iranian-backed Shiite revolution, all the way to Baghdad and brought them to power. The same people that his father had encouraged to rise up and then backstabbed. Bush helped them win the war. And Najdat stayed and fought for five years to help them achieve a total victory against their Sunni Arab enemies and cleanse the capital city of them. Well, but here's the thing. The Americans hate Iran and the Ayatollah and the Shiite Axis. That's part of the reason that they did it was they thought if they got rid of Saddam and that America and its friends like the Jordanians to dominate Iraq, that that would weaken Iran's position in the region. It would help sever Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria, uh, the the, uh, Iranian-aligned government in Syria from Iran, and that the Iraqi Shiites under American control would then lord it over the Iranians. Well, this is just a pipe dream. This isn't what happened at all. They brought Iran's best friends to power, people who did not need us because, one, they're the supermajority, and two, they're friends with the country next door. So they said, thanks a lot for winning a five-year civil war for us and killing a million people. (laughs) Now, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Thanks very much. Now beat it, W. Bush. And they made Bush sign a deal to leave by the end of 2011. So they had fought a whole war for the side that they hate, for the Shiite side. Good Lord. Well, but so then they thought better of it. And this is still during W. Bush. This is not Obama, the secret Muslim from Kenya, like Donald Trump said. This is... And still during W. Bush, they realize their mistake and they go to the Saudi king. We know this from the hero, Julian Assange, um, that uh, Zalmay Khalilzad went to the Saudi king and the Saudi king said, it used to be us and you and Saddam Hussein's Iraq against Iran. Now you've given Iraq to Iran on a golden platter. What are you going to do about it? And Khalilzad says, whatever you say, your highness, essentially. And so this is where America tilts back toward the Sunnis, who are their friends in the first place. That's the entire Gulf Cooperation Council. All the Sunni emirs and kings and potentates of the Arabian Peninsula, including Kuwait, Jordan, and then Turkey. It's not Arab, but still they're Sunni and aligned. And the Israelis are, of course, the Jewish state, but also in the same kind of alliance system on the other side, opposed to the Shiite side. But the Saudis, the UAE, Cutter. They don't really have land forces. What do they got? They got Al Qaeda suicide bomber terrorists. That's who they've got. So when America accidentally empowered Iran in Iraq War II, they then decided to tilt back toward the Sunnis, but that meant tilting back toward Al Qaeda. And so that's why you see at Saudi's behest, the American war in Libya against Gaddafi, which was not against the Shiites. He's not a Shiite. It has nothing to do with the Shiites, but the Saudis just hated him and wanted it done. And it was in favor of groups like the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, Ansar al-Sharia, and Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb were all the immediate beneficiaries of that horrible war in Libya, which has been raging for 10 years ever since then. And, um, and then they went right on to Syria. And this is where you mentioned ISIS before. What's ISIS? ISIS is Al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II. When America took the Shiite side, they pushed the Sunnis into a violent insurgency. And the bin Ladenites essentially co-opted a major part of that and took credit for a a major part of that. And that was, uh, you probably remember, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and his guys. They were the butchers that would blow up, you know, um, Shiite pilgrims, civilians, uh, in you know, gathered for their religious ceremonies 
and and were some of the worst fighters against the Americans in that war. Well, it wasn't David Petraeus and the army that beat them. It was the local Sunni tribal factions and insurgent factions basically got sick of the jihadis antics, you know, a bunch of Saudis and Egyptians and, you know, Yemenis and whoever coming from out of the country and start telling them what to do. And in fact, provoking an insurgency that are provoking a, a response that they couldn't handle, right? The Shiites had the Sunnis way outnumbered. And so the Al-Qaeda atrocities in Iraq War II were only provoking the Sunnis total loss in that war. So eventually the local Iraqi Sunnis stabbed them all on the back and got rid of them for us, which is just a miracle, right? If you're religious, you know, do a thingamajig. Uh, that was just absolutely, you know, you could have never hoped for that to happen and it did happen. But then Obama just takes the paddles and resuscitates them right back to life again to fight the jihad in Syria next door. And sorry, stage right. So uh, just on the other side of the line, in fact, we're still at war with the last of Al-Qaeda in Iraq through the end of 2011 in Iraq. Mm -hmm. We're already calling them moderate rebels and good guys and freedom fighters on the same other group side of, of the line in Syria. So we're fighting them here and over here we're arming Overlapping them. And, at the same time. And, yep. and that now, that's what became ISIS. Is, that's what is became Al-Qaeda over there that we armed and called our friends. Right. So we backed them for two years from 2011 through 13. I mean, it's, it's so incredibly stupid. How can how can our leaders not see that they have to be able to see this is a bad idea? Any well, anybody with two cents? I'll about paraphrase them. John Kerry. I mean, I agree with you that it's stupid. But so here's John Kerry explained it. Okay, John Kerry was secretly recorded talking to some Syrian rebels after they were already losing, and it was the Russians had already intervened and the game was already up. And Kerry says, "Listen, we gave you guys a bunch of guns already. Okay, the problem is we give you a bunch of guns." The other side dumps in a bunch of guns. So it doesn't always help. You know, it just kind of makes matters worse all the way around. And and listen, now we have ISIS. He says, we saw the rise of ISIS. <laughs> and we thought we could manage. We thought that we could use them to pressure Assad to step aside. Oh, but Lord. then that didn't happen. Instead, Assad went to Putin and asked, please come and save me. And Putin did. And why did Putin, John Kerry's own words, Secretary of State at the time, why did Putin intervene? Because he didn't want ISIS to take over Damascus. And that was what was going to happen. So, because look, it's a good question you're asking here. Obama didn't want Al-Qaeda or, you know, Al-Qaeda left or Al-Qaeda right, whichever, ISIS or, or al-Nusra, to rule Damascus. He wanted regime change in Damascus. He wanted to see the Ba'ath government fall and Assad strung up or whatever. But he was always terrified about who's going to replace him, though. So what they wanted to do, I mean, and this is absolutely stupid. OK, I'm totally in agreement with you. But I'm just saying this is what they thought was so clever was we'll support these horrible jihadists. Not enough to put them in power, but enough to pressure Assad to say, fine, it'll be the only way to save my country will be to give in to the Americans' demands and replace me with somebody else that's more to their liking, and then they'll back off support. Right, these so we, we were going to support them enough to overthrow Assad, but not enough to then take power after they overthrew Assad. That was the plan? Yeah, pretty much. And then that didn't, of course, <laughs> did not work. Of course, that was completely no. crazy. In fact, so, so here's the first stage of it backfired was after two years of this, ISIS, that is, 
the Al-Qaeda dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in, um, pardon me, the Iraqi dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq split from al-Nusra, which was the Syrian dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And ISIS said, and, and at the same time, they split from Al-Qaeda and said, I'm an al-Zawahiri hiding in Pakistan can write his law. Let's see him enforce it. We want to create our caliphate now. We don't want to wait around. And so they declared a state in eastern Syria. Six months later, somebody raised an ISIS black flag over a government building in Fallujah, Iraq. And people like me and my guests on my show are extremely alarmed about this. And Barack Obama writes it off and says, oh, come on, ISIS, that's just the junior varsity. The junior varsity puts on a Lakers jersey. That doesn't make him Kobe Bryant, he says. But this is Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They're not the junior varsity. These guys have done 700 suicide bombings before or something. These guys are the worst of the worst. These guys are second generation Al-Qaeda, post-September 11th Al-Qaeda, you know, George W. Bush's gift to humanity, right? It was he, he turned Western Iraq into terrorist university where tens of thousands or 10,000 or more foreign fighters came to join this group of sickos. These guys were not junior varsity. These guys are the most dangerous men on the planet. And instead, Barack Obama turned a blind eye to him six months after that. In June 2014, they rolled right in and conquered all of Western Iraq within two weeks. They seized Mosul, Fallujah, Baiji, Samara, everything but Ramadi. I'm not sure why Ramadi took them another year or so. Um, and they went all the way up to the gates of Baghdad and all the way to the gates of Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan in the north, and declared their caliphate. And their leader, Baghdadi, renamed himself the Caliph Ibrahim, ordained by God to rule mankind under this crazy thing. It was as though they had put bin Laden himself on the throne in a new state in the entire east of Syria and west of Iraq, which, remember, we were joking before about 400 men. We're supposed to be afraid. Bill Kristol says we have to be afraid of radical Islam. We have to be afraid of the Islamo-fascist caliphate out there. But where's the caliphate? There's nothing but nation states in the way. And again, all under the thumb of the USA and our friends, right? So where's the caliphate? Well, W. Bush gave him Western Iraq. Barack Obama gave them Eastern Syria. There's your caliphate. There you go. Then they had to launch Iraq War III, 2014 through 17. And then, of course, what? They're right back on the side of the Iraqi Shiites and the Iranians that they wish they hadn't fought Iraq War II for. Good Lord. And the whole reason that they supported the rise of ISIS and the caliphate in Syria was to spite the Shiites for the last favor they did for them. Now. The project blew up in their face so bad, they got to fight a whole other war on the side of the Iranians and their Iraqi Shiite friends again. So now the Iranians have more influence in Syria than ever before, more influence in Iraq than even they had after Iraq War II now, after Iraq War III. And so everything our government has done to spite Iran has empowered Iran. And everything they've done to spite Iran has also, obviously, in most cases, directly empowered al-Qaeda. They pulled the same kind of stunt in Yemen in a war that continues to this day, where America, they started out fighting against AQAP, the guys that bombed the USS Cole, the guys that tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 with the underpants bomb. Well, that war against them ended in 2015. Barack Obama turned that war right around. Now we're on their side again. Why? Because we're fighting the Shiites. 
because we're fighting a group called the Houthis who are friends with Iran. So America's on the side of AQAP fighting with the UAE and the Saudis against the dreaded Shiite enemy, even though they've never done anything to us, really. You know, they're Israel's enemy, not ours. The amount of lives that have been lost in just this chaos that has gone nowhere, you, you have to be a complete sociopath to just continue putting your foot on the gas pedal and, and well, let's correct this mistake with by this next one that's definitely going to lead to more death and chaos and waste of money. Um, I feel like I just got a master's class in the Middle East. Like that was that was an insane layout of it. Let me ask you, have you ever like I feel like most Americans like this is just so complex that they 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 give up after a little bit. Have you ever yeah. like put together like a flow chart of this stuff, like something that people can look at and see this? Well, I do have this. a video series that's sort of a breakdown of the book. You know, the book takes you chapter by chapter through all this stuff in chronological order yes. enough already. But if you um, if you go to my YouTube channel slash Scott Horton show. I have, if you look at playlists there, there's a 14 chapter playlist or 13 something chapter playlist where I walk you through the whole book and explain all this stuff step by step. And then the guy that- Where, did, where do you find that again? That would be great to check it, out. Yeah, it's at youtube.com slash Scott Horton show. And the guy that produced it put all kinds of footnotes up there and visual yeah, that's aids what and whatever to get you. Visual you know. aids, footnotes, yeah. diagrams, everything. And honestly, you know what? Fucking wild. And just everybody rewind, listen to this interview one more time. A lot of this is going to hang together for you because, you know, I don't spend a lot of time talking about secret operation this and operation that that you've never heard of before and that kind of thing. Most of what I talk about, you at least know a little bit about, you know, if I tell you we went back to war in 2014 over there against ISIS, that sounds right. If I tell you Ronald Reagan back Saddam Hussein back in 1987, you go, yeah, no, I know that. Yeah. Right. So all I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to tie it together. through and yeah. let you see how this was a reaction to the consequences of the last one of the last one of the last one all the way through. And, and you just see how it's it all, all been that for, for, for literally 40 yeah. years. It's been one action has caused the next reaction for 40 right. years, our yep. entire lifetime. Essentially, it's it's That's wild, exactly fucking right. wild. Um, we're running out of time, and I didn't even get to ask you about Russia. So let's just real quickly, because I heard a senator come on TV and say we might have to consider nuclear options. Now, right. this whole this whole deal, I remember I remember when Donald Trump came out and he said that NATO is stupid and a waste of money, and he's not That's the not most great. articulate guy, but NATO essentially was formed to protect uh, Europe's interest against the USSR, which has now fallen. Right. So right. it kind of doesn't 30 need... years ago. Yeah. So yeah. this whole debate between Russia and Ukraine is about whether or not Ukraine can join NATO, from my understanding. Doesn't seem like that important of a thing to American interests at all. Um, right. Are we is there any risk of actual nuclear war here? Like, is that yes. something we should? OK, yes. I mean, I, was, I don't think it it's a great one because, that. yeah, I think Biden's already backing down is the good news as we record this. But, you know, just to be clear here, because people might be listening to this much later on in the future, too, that as we record this, we are nine days from the 30th anniversary of the final dissolution of the Soviet Union. It was Christmas Day, 1991, that they pulled down the red flag over the Kremlin and put up the red, white and blue Russian flag. And that was it. Even Belarus and Ukraine were independent. The whole thing was over 
kaput. They brought their troops back 1,200 miles from East Germany, back behind the Ural Mountains. I mean, the world's never seen such a miracle. I mean, you talk about the local Iraqi Sunnis taking, uh, taking care of Al-Qaeda for us in 2007. Pfft. How about the Soviet Union ceasing to exist like a magic wish? Are you right. kidding me? At that moment, we should have disbanded NATO. That should have been the end of it. Yeah, it seems and like a fair said, deal. That seems like a it, fair deal. They, they, that's right. they dissolved the USSR. Okay, we're getting rid of NATO now. But instead, they agreed, okay, listen, you, we will allow the reunification of Germany if you promise not to expand NATO one inch eastward from there. And by the way, just real quick, if people want to look up, I have a speech that I wrote um, that's, you know, 10,000 words or whatever about this. That's just a chronology from Bush Sr. all the way through Donald Trump of America's Russia policy. It's called, not surprisingly, the new Cold War with Russia is all America's fault. And you can find that at antiwar.com. And I explain all this. But essentially, they promised not to expand NATO. And then they did. And they said, don't worry, we can expand it because the Russians are our friends now. It, we're not doing this in an anti-Russian way, so they won't react. It'll be fine. But of course, that wasn't really true. It was about hemming in Russia and you know, further containing them uh, than before and weakening their power. And so then the Russians reacted. And then they said, see, that's why we have to have our big NATO military alliance is to protect from an aggressive Russia. But this is a reactive Russia, not an aggressive Russia. But they picked that fight. And it's, you know, the military themselves call their empire or all of their business a self-licking ice cream cone, right? Meaning they create their own problems. Then they supposedly clean them up. They just make matters worse. And then they go after that problem too. And it's just a self-justificating things so they don't have to get real jobs and so here <laughs> they dump a bunch of weapons into ukraine and the russians go listen we take that very seriously and there's a limit and you better stop and fair. the americans Seems go fair. oh my god the yeah the russians are so aggressive in picking a fight with us when that's not true right if i bring my deterrence all the way to your front porch i'm not really deterring you anymore am i it's now i'm the aggressor yeah. right and so um the Americans always phrase everything in terms of Russian aggression and American defense, but that's really just not right. And I'm sorry, we don't have time to go into it because I do have another interview too, but um, they overthrew the government in Ukraine twice in 10 years, the Orange Revolution of 2004 and the Nazi coup of 2014. And in both cases, they overthrew the pro-Russian leaning, democratically elected president, Yanukovych, bad guy, corrupt guy, but still he won the elections fair and square and they screwed him in coup d'etats twice to throw him out of power. And that was what led to the current crisis. And um, in fact, if you look at my Twitter feed right now, uh, slash Scott Horton show, uh, you can see my clip on the Kennedy show last night where I call out our sitting president because he was vice president at the time and was involved in that coup in overthrowing the government in 2014 uh, when he was vice president at the time that helped lead to the current crisis. So yes, I mean, your instincts are right on this. What are we doing messing around in Ukraine? That's east of what we even call Eastern Europe, right? And this is like if the Russians were messing around in Canada or Mexico, we absolutely would not tolerate it. You know, in our Monroe Doctrine, yeah, that tells the old world- we certainly wouldn't um, be able to say that, or we would say they were the aggressors if they were in Canada, right. not absolutely us right. for one, not right. wanting them there. Yeah. And look, you know, the, the Monroe Doctrine says the old world better stay the hell out of the new world. But it also promises that we will stay out of Europe and their affairs, too. 
So it's time that we start living by that. Yeah. All right, Scott. Thank you so much. Uh, that was, that you, was fantastic. Tell people uh, where they can get more Scott Horton. Antiwar.com, libertarianinstitute.org, scotthorton.org. I got 5,600 something interviews for you there at scotthorton.org. Wow. And uh, I wrote the books, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already. Enough Time already, to End right the War here, in and the audio book is almost done. It should be out this weekend. Are you are you uh, reading it? Yeah, it's me. I'm just good, editing. Good. I'm nitpicking the hell out of it, but it should be ready for you like by Monday or something, I hope. Excellent. Almost Excellent. Done. All right, Scott. Okay. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks so much appreciate for having your me. Time. Really appreciate it. Take care.